This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Welcome to the commencement ceremonies of the Goldman School of Public Policy at the University of California, Berkeley. Welcome to Goldman School faculty, students, and staff. A special welcome, a very special welcome to family, friends, and others who are here uh, celebrating this commencement. Most of all, welcome to the graduating class of 2019. My name is Henry Brady, and it's my privilege to serve as the Dean of the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Uh, Today, we are here to honor, celebrate, and congratulate three groups of graduates. The Goldman School's 49th graduating Master's of Public Policy class, which includes graduates getting concurrent degrees in law, public health, energy and resources, and engineering. That's the first group. Our second group is our Masters of Public uh, Affairs class. And our third group is an outstanding doctoral graduate student who's getting a PhD today. Let's applaud all three (laughs) groups. You know, before I I launch into remarks, I I was just talking to the manager here, and he was telling me this is a Ford plant. Uh, It made Ford cars, and during World War II, it made Jeeps and Sherman tanks. And right over there, there was a little railroad that operated that actually took the Sherman tanks and the Jeeps over to the ships over there that were then shipped out around the world as part of the war effort. So this is an extraordinary place with an amazing history. And right nearby is Rosie the Riveter Museum, uh, which celebrates the role of women in World War II. An extraordinary story. So the Goldman School of Public Policy was founded in 1969 as one of the nation's first graduate programs of its kind, focusing on public policy analysis. This coming October, we'll be celebrating our 50th anniversary. Today, the Goldman School is one of the foremost public policy schools in the nation. But, as your friends and family may have asked, what is public policy analysis? (laughs) Public policy analysis is a rigorous way of defining and solving the problems that society faces. Public policy analysts choose evidence, logic, statistics, economics, political science, and management skills to carefully define public policy problems and to analyze their consequences. This may be something unusual in the era in which we live right now, but nevertheless, we believe that it's extraordinarily important. Public policy analysts know, for example, that just because a policy sounds good, that doesn't mean it's always a good public policy. Take cutting taxes, for example. On the one hand, that sounds great. Taxes mean more money for those whose taxes are cut. Isn't that a good idea? Well, yes, but tax cuts mean cutting government revenues as well. But often revenues are needed to pay for education, health care, or to deal with natural disasters and poverty and many other programs. 
Can we forgo those revenues? A policy analyst asks that question. It also matters whose taxes are cut. Sometimes tax cuts make the rich richer and the poor poorer. Is that a good idea? And it matters whether the country has some, uh, whether the economy has some slack in it so that the stimulus that the tax cut provides actually creates jobs instead of just creating inflation. So we have to be wary about what the implications will be of any policy. Just because it sounds good doesn't mean it is good. And public policy analysts are always there with questions about public policies. And it's the job of public policy analysts to trace through rigorous analysis the consequences of public policies and to provide policymakers with information to make the right decisions. Perhaps more importantly, public policy analysts can provide those who want to make changes in society, including our graduates themselves. They can provide those graduates with both the knowledge and with the courage to make change. Knowledge is important to avoid ignorance or ideological blindness that leads to policies that simply fail. Courage is exceptionally important to move forward in the face of doubt, uncertainty, and skepticism. Knowledge and courage work together. By working hard to analyze a policy carefully, a change maker can know its strengths and weaknesses. By knowing them, the change maker can answer those who doubt and disbelieve that change is possible. The change maker can have the courage to get through tough times by knowing that the policy is the right thing to do. And that kind of courage is the best kind of courage. It's based upon knowledge and information and understanding that your policy really is a good idea. And that's what our graduates know how to do. Here at GSBP, we endeavor to equip our graduates with more knowledge, but also with more courage. We do this by challenging them with thought-provoking courses and with exciting and sometimes perplexing client-based projects. The faculty and staff of the Goldman School marvel at the many accomplishments of our students during their time at GSBP, and we are proud of each and every one of them. Through their IPAs, I'll let your student uh, explain these terms, IPAs, internships, APAs, and capstones, they have already contributed in many, many ways to making organizations more effective and fair in California while they've been at GSBP across the nation and around the world. And speaking to the graduates, in your careers, you are graduates of 2019. We'll do even more. One of the most exciting things about being dean of the Goldman School of Public Policy is that you, you will certainly do extraordinary things. And we will have the joy as dean, as faculty, as staff of witnessing all that you accomplish. Right now, more than ever, nothing could be more important than to have dedicated, committed, thoughtful, and immensely talented individuals who want to solve the world's problems. Those of us at GSBP feel blessed that we have had the opportunity to witness all of your hard work since you started at GSBP, and that we will have the pleasure of watching you change the world after today. 
we will all watch with great anticipation, and we will surely be awestruck and amazed by all of your accomplishments. So to our graduates, let me say, knowledge and courage, those are the qualities that you have, and GSBP has worked to nurture and to expand them. So with those abilities, please go forward and be change makers. Please, please, go make the world a better place. Let me end by thanking all of those people who have made this possible. This event has a special significance for everyone here today. Let us thank all of the families, the spouses, the partners, the children, and friends who have supported our graduates during their time at GSBP. Let's take a moment to recognize the people in your lives whose support played a critical role in helping you successfully reach this point. Let's give them a round of applause. Finally, MPP, MPA, and PhD graduates, through your hard work and determination during your time at GSBP, you have successfully completed your degree, and today you are joining a community of GSBP alumni more than 2,300 strong, all of whom have a common bond, the Goldman School, and the desire to make the world a better place. As our newest group of alumni, we look forward to all of the exciting work that lies ahead of you. Congratulations and good luck, class of 2019. So in a moment, I will call two members of the GSBP Alumni Association to the podium to welcome the class of 2019 graduates to the GSBP Alumni Association. Before doing that, I want to note the importance of philanthropy and alumni contributions to GSBP and helping it remain a top public policy school. We need your help. <laughs> Already. Nothing could be more fitting in this regard than to note the retirement of our extraordinary director of development, Annette Dornbus, who has worked so hard to create a culture of philanthropy and giving back um, among our graduates and among others who are close to the Goldman School. Annette was GSPP's first development director, and she has developed philanthropic efforts that have allowed us to increase our financial aid to students, to fund faculty positions, and to build a third new academic building which will go forward, that will provide for the expansion of our programs and our continued success. My thanks to Annette Dornbus. Let me now call two members of the GSPP Alumni Association to the stage who will welcome the class of 2019 graduates to the Alumni Association. Ginny Fang is a 2008 MPP and chair of the GSBP Alumni Association Board of Directors. Sarah Bonn is a 2000 MPP and GSBP's Director of Annual Fund and External Relations. Please come to the podium. Make some changes here. Okay, 
This is my non-single-use plastic tea holder here. <clears throat> Graduates, faculty, staff, friends, and family, good morning. My name is Ginny Fang, and as the dean just said, uh, I am a 2008 graduate of GSPP, the MPP program. We didn't have the MPA program then. And I am also the current chair of the GSPP Alumni Association Board of Directors. Um, the alumni board, uh, just for those of you that don't know, is comprised of 15 dedicated GSPP alumni who actively work to support the school, um, engaging in projects, initiatives uh, to benefit the school, current and prospective students, um, and also, of course, alumni. <clears throat> Excuse me. I am pleased and honored to stand before you today on behalf of the GSPP Alumni Association and the alumni board we officially welcome all of you 2019 PhD uh, MPP and MPA graduates to the Goldman School of Public Policy Alumni Association. Yeah! <laughs> Congratulations on your graduation today. It's an amazing achievement. As an alumnus of UC Berkeley and of the Goldman School, I am confident that you will take your degree and make a difference in the world. Today you join a community of over 2,300 uh, GSPP alumni around the world who are dedicated to making the world a better place. And as we near the school's 50th anniversary, very exciting, uh, we form an incredible network that is more impactful, more dynamic, more diverse, and more powerful than it has ever been. So as you move forward on your path, I strongly encourage uh, that you engage with this network. Uh, call on it for support, advice, introductions, professional advancement, friendships, and maybe for some of you, votes for your electoral campaign. Go GSPP. The Alumni Association truly is here for you. Uh, you can connect to an online, of course, but also connect in person, remain in a person contact with GSPP alums around the country and around the world. Uh, we have events there's class reunions, and of course, there's the Alumni Association annual dinner back here at Berkeley. So as you settle into your career, you know, don't forget to continue to invest into the GSPP network. It's something that will return to you and will return to others. <clears throat> the strength of the network really relies on the contribution of alumni from around the world. And of course, as you, uh, you know, settle into your jobs, think back about how you can contribute back in just as other alums have done for you. Uh, so volunteer time to help future students. Uh, alumni have definitely done that for you all. Uh, plan or host an alumni event, a happy hour speakers forum, your class reunion. Be a source for internships. Many of you have benefited from internships, IPAs, APAs. All of these relationships are from alumni around the world that still care about the school and what the school is, is their, their mission and their vision. Um, and of course, if you would, uh, we would love to have you as part of the alumni board or one of our many initiatives. You'll be hearing more about these initiatives soon um, as you move forward. And as the dean said earlier, it is important for us to give back financially as alumni. Um, I know you're moving on to get, get your jobs, um, and it's, it's early to think about that, uh, but it's truly true that it is the gifts of the alumni that allows future alumni, future students, uh, to be successful just as you. 
So those are just a few of the many ways you can pay it forward. Uh, but the, really the bottom line being is that the GSPP Alumni Association is here for you and wholeheartedly welcomes you and is excited to be an active part of your successful future. So I personally look forward to seeing you at a GSPP event in the near future. Um, <clears throat> to commemorate your transition to the Alumni Association, the Alumni Board has sponsored gifts for all of the graduates today. Uh, I will now turn it over to Sarah Bond, who is GSPP's Director of Annual Fund Alum and Alumni Relations, who is also a GSPP uh, grad herself. She's been instrumental in coordinating with the Alumni Board to uh, make these gifts possible for you today. Sarah. Thank you, Ginny. Okay, so welcome to our newly minted GSPP alumni, your families and friends. Uh, I think everybody knows who I am by this point, so I'm not going to say it again. <laughs> so uh, I am delighted to be here with you today. Uh, graduates, if you haven't already done so, please look under your seats for your gift from the GSPP Alumni Board, which is a tote bag with GSPP swag. Oh, don't clunk them on the floor because they'll break. <laughs> so that we hope you will enjoy and use proudly. I would like to extend my heartfelt gratitude to the board. Every single board member made a financial contribution to make these gifts happen. And I was delighted to collaborate with Ginny and the board on this endeavor. So these gifts are a token of our appreciation for you, our 2019 graduates, and to serve as a reminder of your lifelong bond with GSPP. You and your GSPP alumni family are what keep the school a vibrant beacon for people who want to make a difference in the world. We need and want you to stay involved with us after today. To echo Ginny and the Dean, as you depart GSPP, please keep three words in mind. Participate collaborate, and contribute. We encourage you to stay connected, participate in activities and initiatives led by the GSPP Alumni Board and our Alumni Association, collaborate with us to plan reunions or network with one another, and contribute through philanthropy to keep our programs at the highest caliber and preparing the policy leaders of tomorrow. I look forward to keeping in touch with you as you thrive and succeed with your newly minted policy toolbox. Congratulations, everyone. And now I would like to introduce our next speaker, Jacqueline Pearl, who was selected by her MPP classmates to address the class of 2019. Thank you for that warm welcome. Dean Brady, GSPP faculty and staff, fellow graduates, family, friends, and community. It's such a great privilege to have the opportunity to address all of you today. I am honored to have been chosen by my classmates to represent the MPP class of 2019. Despite my poor attendance at nearly all social events and, and multiple careless reply alls to our GSPP listserv. In reflecting on what I wanted to say today, and in particular to you, my fellow classmates, I kept coming back to a quote that sits on my desk at home that was grounding for me, particularly in our first year of grad school. It's by famed African-American journalist and civil rights leader, Ida B. Wells. It reads, the way to right wrongs is to shine the light of truth upon them. If you were like me, you chose the Goldman School because it seeks to do just that, to uplift truth through rigorous empirical science. 
You came here because you too believe that black lives matter, that climate change is real, that no one is illegal, that love is love, that women should have agency over their bodies, and that all genders are whole and good. You hope to go out into the world and develop policies that would reinforce and protect those beliefs. And while we sit here today better equipped to do the work we envisioned just a short two years ago, anyone reading the news or working to advance good policy will tell you that data, science, and logic are not enough to tip the scales in favor of human decency. So if you, like me, have been turning to Netflix to avoid, to avoid the angst that comes from feeling like there is no clear path forward, then you too may have found hope in the uplift, uplifting spirit of the Queer Eyes Fab Five. The unconditional love these five gay men showed to individuals who in many cases explicitly or implicitly expressed their intolerance for their way of life, paired with the breakthroughs they have after exchanging stories of hardship and isolation and fear, reminds us that change requires basic human connection. And that connection comes from understanding the other and their common struggles in humanity. So instead of telling you all the things you should go out and do and fix and how you'll be great, because I'm confident that you all will, I want to shine a light upon my personal truths because they are what have motivated me to right the wrongs around me, even when things feel hopeless. As many of you know, I come from humble beginnings. My parents were immigrants from El Salvador and Cuba, their families fleeing to escape oppression and fear, and in my father's case, carnage and violence. After a rocky beginning to their relationship, my parents went their separate ways. My mother was forced to raise us on her own, struggling to make ends meet and find safe communities for us to live in. My brother and I attended overcrowded, under-resourced, asphalt-paved public schools and spent our early years oblivious to the bigger world outside of our tiny immigrant community. As I matured and became more attuned to my surroundings, I started to pick up on the adult conversations going on around me. I learned about the struggles my aunts faced as their children were lured into gang life, drugs, and theft, the byproducts of scarcity. When I was 13, I came home from school one day to find my godmother, weeping at my grandmother's dining room table. My, <clears throat> I'm sorry. My six-year-old cousin, who I'd lived with for great uh, stretches of my early years, had been arrested. During a fight over a bicycle he'd had stolen from him at gunpoint just days prior, he'd stabbed another young Latino boy with a pocket knife. And the other boy hadn't survived. At school in the coming weeks, the news started to circulate, and a classmate approached me, asking if I was related to the boy who had killed a member of a local gang. I denied the relation and spent the, rest, the remainder of that school year fearing that the young man's, young man's family would have hurt me or my family out of retaliation. The following year, my mother used a relative's address to enroll me in a different school district with higher quality schools and safer neighborhoods. We commuted nearly 40 minutes sometimes up to an hour each way, allowing us to escape many of the troubles of our neighborhood. But it was there, in this bright and shiny new place, that I'd begin to develop insecurities about having less or not having been groomed for what appeared to be the mainstream high school experience. In college, I was the only Latina in my dorm room wing. My doormate's parents would come visit on the weekends, take them to dinner, and buy them groceries, something my family didn't have the luxury of doing for me. 
and my roommate would stack her paychecks on a desk that sat adjacent to our bedroom door, serving as a painful reminder that she didn't need the money. I, on the other hand, would work 20 or 25-hour weeks, relishing every precious dollar I earned, and would struggle to keep up with the assigned reading because I felt overextended and overwhelmed, but also because I hadn't developed the reading stamina that many of my peers had. After college, I moved to the Bay Area to work in an elementary school as a teacher in East Oakland, where I served many children who by second grade still struggled with the alphabet, despite two full years of prior formal schooling. I watched failing teachers go years without an evaluation, and others work 12-hour days and six-day weeks, driving cars in need of repair. I recall one colleague in particular driving with a bag taped over the broken window of his car for months because he couldn't afford to fix it, and frankly didn't have the time to worry about it. In the first week of my last year at that school, as a newly minted rookie principal, I had to lead our community through the difficult days after a young African-American man had been shot dead at the foot of our school. The hardest part of which was trying to figure out the best way to support my recently hired African-American male mentor, who had held the victim as he took his final breaths as he waited for an ambulance to arrive. The research revealing lower life expectancy for boys and men of color the reports on racial ethnic disparities in college enrollment and persistence, and the white papers on rising inequality are all critical in our fight for justice. But it's these vivid personal experiences and memories that stay with me, that drive me to work long hours, to insert myself into conversations where I have not been invited, to force others to make space for my ideas, and to hold others accountable for real outcomes. If you are an immigrant, have experienced poverty, are a survivor of sexual assault, identify as a person of color, are part of the LGBT community, you too have your own stories to tell. Share them widely. The statistics alone will not allow others to feel your pain and suffering. You must boldly go forth and demand that others listen to look truth in its eyes. It's our stories that have the ability to move communities, to advocate and mobilize to do the tremendous work that lies ahead. And to those of you who are the lucky few who have not had to endure these trials, I thank you for surrendering your privilege and stepping up to take on this important work. As many of you likely already know, it's easy to become distracted by worldly things to become uninspired or lose momentum. And in those moments and all the moments in between, I urge you to surround yourself with those who do not choose to do this work, but are compelled by their stories, by their communities, by their unwillingness to allow history to repeat itself. They will serve as your guiding light, the truth that we need to keep fighting. The Goldman experience has been assimilation, despite at times not feeling like it. But it truly has been a training ground where we've been allowed to rest, reassess, strategize, and sharpen our weapons against injustice. The true work lies ahead. Go out, shine the light of truth upon the wrongs you seek to right, uphold your core beliefs, and change our narrative. It's been an honor to prepare for this next chapter of my life alongside you. Thank you to the Goldman School, to you, my classmates, for your camaraderie and support, and to my family for your constant love and belief in my potential. Congratulations, class of 2019, and Godspeed. Thank you. 
And now I would like to call Julie Lowe to the podium, who was selected by her MPA classmates to address the MPA class of 2019. Good morning. Hello, my name is Julie Lowe, and I have the honor of representing my dear classmates, the Master of Public Affairs graduating class of 2019. <laughs> On behalf of our class, I'd like to congratulate our fellow graduates from the MPP and PhD programs. We know this road has not always been easy, but we are with you and we are grateful for your company on this journey we share to make the world a better place. I'd also like to thank the faculty and staff of the Goldman School of Public Policy, in particular Dean Brady, the MPA Executive Director and GSPP Assistant Dean Annie Campbell-Washington, Senior Assistant Dean of GSPP Martha Chavez, as well as Jasmine Fang, Jane Malden, and Misty Lauderley. Thank you to the talented faculty and lecturers at GSPP. You are more than just the assigners of problem sets and overlords of memos. <laughs> we look to you for the tools we need in the world to achieve our missions. It is humbling to learn from you, and we are grateful for the generous ways you share your expertise with us. Thank you to the MPA families and for your love and support. MPA families and friends have been holding us down for, since this, about this time last May when we arrived at the UC Berkeley campus. Throughout the year, many MPAs have juggled the enormous task of pursuing a rigorous graduate education, many working full-time as executives and leaders in nonprofit organizations, government agencies, and social enterprises. Our MPAs have learned how to navigate being students and professionals and parents. For many MPAs, English is a secondary language. Thank you all for being so great and working so hard to be part of this wonderful community. Each MPA has contributed to shaping this program and I'm grateful for each one of you. The MPA class is comprised of 37 students from across the globe. 16 countries are represented. Argentina, Brazil, Canada, Chile, China, Germany, Iceland, India, Japan, Nigeria, Paraguay, Singapore, South Korea, Uganda, and the US. What binds our international group of MPA students together is a shared commitment to public service. Many of my classmates will return to the places they call home and serve their neighbors. Others will remain here to serve new communities that have embraced them. Whether in the public or private sector, in the academy or in advocacy, we have chosen to center people and more specifically to work in service of the world we want to see. For me, this mission is personal. In 2002, I was a young person living under a freeway overpass at the foot of the Bay Bridge without a family safety net. I ended up there because of a string of life circumstances that in my young life, I had very little control over. I had no idea at the time that there were places like the Goldman School where policy wonks passionately wrote capstone projects about the homeless. <laughs> In fact, I was much older when I finally learned of structural inequalities baked into our system that made it nearly impossible to stabilize my life. My work to build a life worthy of the struggles I overcame have brought me here with you all. My personal triumphs are what distinguish me as a policymaker and political activist, and my training at GSPP will aid me in my mission to dismantle barriers for others like me. 
It's been incredibly healing to learn that you have all been here all along. There is still a lot of work for us to do, but based on what I've learned about this class, I believe we are capable of achieving what we aspire to. As Dean Brady mentioned, we are gathered here today at the site of what was formerly the Ford Automobile Assembly Plant. The Ford plant opened in the 1930s to produce cars until the 1940s when it became a wartime factory to produce vehicles for the U.S. military. At this site alone, workers produced 55,000 tanks and combat vehicles towards the war efforts. However, this is not just the site of a factory. History was made here. During the war, Rosie, Riveter, Rosie the Riveter was a term for women who worked at shipyards and factories, like this one. They took positions left open by the men who went to war. Their work was essential to the U.S. economy and towards national security. Rosie's remain a symbol of American feminism and our fight for equal economic opportunity. Rosie's became a powerful symbol for our nation, not because they were women, but because they were equally capable, equally smart, and equally strong. Through their efforts in a moment of world crisis, Rosie's seized the moment to show the world her qualities. Through shattering the norms that pre-existed them, Rosie's revealed that we are each more capable than we might know. They showed us that the world can change in significant ways. It can be different than the current circumstances suggest. I offer this as a reminder that our work is not only defined by how well we demonstrate our technical abilities. It's more than how well we state a problem or how precisely we select criteria for a policy analysis. Right. Our work as policy leaders and members of a global community is to push the limits of what we accept as the status quo. To take advantage of the moment to build something new to believe in. This is what the Rosies did, and this is what each of us must do, by finding what we each are more capable of than we know of at the moment. The French cinematographer and filmmaker Robert Bresson said, make visible what, without you, might perhaps have never been seen. Each of us is uniquely equipped to contribute to the solutions that to contribute solutions to the issues we care most about, and to do so, we must reveal ourselves, our beliefs, and our own lives. We must see ourselves in history, both as a product of an imperfect past and as the producers of a more perfect future. The Rosies were among those who lit the path, the very path that I have traveled, the path that Jackie has traveled. As we continue along on our journeys from Berkeley, let us hope that we may light the path for others along the way. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be among you, the graduates of the 2019 class, and I want to remind us, as the Rosies would have, that we can do it. Thank you. Thank you. And now I would like to call Professor Hillary Hoynes to the podium, who has been chosen by the graduates to address the class of 2019. Thank you. Thank you, Julie. I want to add my welcome to the family and friends collected here today, and of course, the star attraction here in front of me, the classes of 2019. So I want to start by, by thanking you for asking me to speak today. Um, it is my honor 
and privilege to be a faculty member in this incredible community, this wonderful school, surrounded by excellence among faculty, staff, and students. So I was working on my remarks last week. I haven't given a lot of graduation speeches, so I did what most of us would do. I Googled tips for giving a graduation speech. <laughs> Number one in my list, I kid you not, quote, recommendations for an eighth grade graduation speech. <laughs> I thought to myself, what does Google know about me? <laughs> a couple of links down from that first link was something I think all of us GSP peers would love. Quote, the NPR ed team dug through thousands of past speeches and built an online database of the very best. Unquote. So I contemplated for a moment, grabbing bits of wisdom from speeches by luminaries such as Beyonce or Michelle Obama. But that didn't seem quite right. So after looking down the list a bit more, I went back to that first click, tips for an eighth grade graduation speech, and I found the advice to be pretty useful. They say there are five elements to include in the graduation speech. Number one, introduce yourself. Number two, share your first impressions at the school. Number three, reflect on your experience and tell them what you enjoyed about it. Number four, talk about your teachers and other students. Number five, discuss prospects for the future. So that's where we're going. <laughs> Hi, I'm Hillary Hoynes. I'm an economist and very happy professor here at the Goldman School. I've been a professor for a very long time, more than 25 years, but I've only been at the Goldman School for five, six years. So I thought I would share my first impressions of the school <laughs> when I arrived here six years ago. Number one, it's a really nice campus. I love the courtyard between the buildings. I love seeing all the ways the courtyard is used. Conference calls, job interviews, study groups, sun catching, and occasionally last lectures of class. That's right, we did that. The other thing that I noticed uh, upon arriving at GSPP is that differences make strength. My faculty behind me come from different disciplines. I'm an economist. We've got political scientists, psychologists, um, many others. Students come from different backgrounds, different academic and life experiences. So those are my first impressions. I'm going to put two together to try to keep this short. So I'm going to reflect on my experience and tell you what I enjoyed about it. And I thought 
I'm not going to talk about the teachers. Today's about you. So I want to talk about you, the students and graduates of 2019. So I have had the pleasure uh, more than once of leading the uh, admissions for the GSPP Master's in Public Policy program. By the way, that means I get to spend a lot of time with the amazing Martha Chavez. That's right. And one of the best parts for me um, of working on admissions is talking to the admitted students and trying to convince them to come to Berkeley. I'm extremely competitive, and this extends to the admissions process when I want to essentially win every student that we admit. So I spent a lot of time talking to students and, conv and trying to convince them to come to Berkeley. And in that process, I've come to recognize what I call the secret sauce of GSPP students. So what makes the amazing GSPP student body amazing? I've come up with four ingredients in that secret sauce. Number one, passion. Who comes to the Goldman School? I think if I could think of one word that summarizes the students that come to the Goldman School, it would be passion. Passion about their policy area, be it immigration, global poverty, education, and a passion and commitment to making a difference. Number two in the secret sauce, knowledge. I've been thinking a lot lately about the difference between intelligence, which of course you all have, and knowledge. And knowledge requires work. Um, knowledge requires doing the work, reading, talking with others, and diving into the issues. Showing up is not enough. We have to do the work, gain the knowledge, and gain the experience. Number three, involvement. In my 25 or more years of university life, I have never been at a place where there is so much going on. In addition to classwork, in addition to capstone projects, in addition to the teaching and research jobs that many of our students engage in while doing classwork and projects, is there time for more? For these students, yes, there is. If you go to our website, you'll see that there are more than 30 student groups at GSPP, to name a few. International Public Policy Group, Berkeley Public Policy Journal, published by our students, the only journal blog of its kind in the US. Policy groups in criminal justice, environment, health policy, politics, inequality, conflict and security, and so on. Examples of events sponsored by these groups. Skip, Students of Color in Public Policy, organized and led the week-long ninth annual Race and Policy Symposium, which is a highlight of our year. We had another group organize year-long meetings about the housing crisis in the Bay Area. Those are just two. And can I remind you that this is a community of just over 200 students. It's amazing. 
The last ingredient in the secret sauce is activism. Beyond involvement is activism, translating passion to making change and getting things done. So with that secret sauce, I want to leave you with one parting thought. As remember, item number five in the eighth grade graduation advice, discuss prospects for the future. This has been a big year for my academic discipline, economics, with an enormous amount of attention on our challenges in economics around lack of diversity, gender, people of color, in our profession. You have today to speak to you, myself, my wonderful colleague, Rucker Johnson, both economists, both speaking to you today. We may be part of the face of economics here at GSPP, but our profession has a long way to go. And I've been thinking about this in the context of the importance of mentoring and how it came to be something that I'm passionate about. When I was a young professional, I didn't know much. I didn't even know what I didn't know. And as I got more experienced, I thought about how I could help others. I think I would kind of describe this as quote-unquote, just being there. When people ask questions, I can help. But I strongly believe that this is not enough. I know things about how to navigate being a young professional in my field, academia, how to be successful, and what to look out for. We forget this, what we know, and the fact that not everybody even knows what they're supposed to know. So I have moved from just be there to reach out, find mentees, and tell them what they should know. So my message to you all today is find a mentor, be a mentor, and share your knowledge. Thank you very much for the great honor of speaking to you today. It is my pleasure to welcome MPP graduate, almost, Victor Fu, who will present the MPP class of 2019 gift for the school. Victor. Hi, everyone. My name is Victor Fu. I'm here to present the class gift. Every year, the Goldman School of Public Policy asks the graduating students if they can donate money towards the school. All this money is used towards the fellowship, and who's perfect to ask besides us, who are going to go into public sector, nonprofit sector, and make a competitive salary while <laughs> serving the community and paying off our student loans and affording the Bay Area? I think we're the best person to ask, the best people to ask in this situation. I want to give a huge shout-out to our uh, committee, uh, Jesse, Andreas, and Jimmy, for organizing the class gift of 2019. And I'm here to... Here's the results of how much we fundraised. So, be prepared. We raised a total of $2,191 and... 
95 cents. We had a participation rate, so our graduating MPP class is 95 students, and we had 36 participants, so 38 participation rates. So great job, uh, our 36 graduates for fundraising, especially that person that gave 95 cents. Huge shout out to that too. Uh, So I'm also here to uh, uh, welcome uh, the MPA graduate, Kavi Singh, who will be presenting the MPA class gift. Good morning, fellow graduates, friends, family, esteemed faculty, and alumni. I would not be here today if it was not for this fellowship. Three months prior to being accepted, I got married. (laughs) And we ended up spending a lot more than we budgeted. So I was really hesitant to come and start this year. But then I got the fellowship. And at that moment, I knew that whatever it takes, I had to get this done. So that started me on this amazing, but really rigorous 12-month academic journey. And it's led me to meet 36 amazing and caring individuals, the MPA class of 2019. We call ourselves the Policy Bears. So it is your, I'm sorry, the policy bearers, who are now as dear to me as my own family, the Oaklanders. It is your continuous support that helps future leaders not only attend the best university in the world, but their opportunity to join their own policy bear family. On behalf of the class gift committee, I am so excited to announce that in the last several months, amidst capstones, finals, and all the other crazy things life threw our way, we're able to raise $2,670. So thank you all once again for your support. It is now my great honor to welcome our next presenter. My husband totally freaked out when I told him who it was because he is such a fanboy. Professor Robert Reich, who will present the first Outstanding Graduate Student Instructor Award. For those of you not in the know, uh, we have a lot of acronyms at GSPP. Uh, One of the acronyms is GSI. We have GSIs, and I want to explain to you what GSIs are before I present uh, our first of two awards for the outstanding GSI. Uh, GSI stands for Graduate Student Instructor. And graduate student instructors are people who basically translate what the faculty says in the classroom into intelligible and comprehensible English for other students. This is a rare skill. And in order to be a GSI, you've got to be an outstanding student to begin with. And so it gives me great pleasure uh, to present the first of two outstanding GSI 
awards this year uh, to an outstanding GSI who has been helping me this year uh, with undergraduates. Uh, something that many of you might not know is that we here on the faculty, we also teach undergraduates, and I have the privilege of teaching 800 undergraduate students uh, in one course. And so you can imagine the load that the GSIs take. Uh, and I'm pleased to present the first outstanding GSI award to MPP graduates, Veronica Cummings. Now, I've got, I've got to say just a couple of things here, and that is that when you are a GSI for an undergraduate, uh, undergraduate GSIing is not just teaching, it is also counseling and coaching and being a confessional <laughs> and providing all sorts of help and guidance. And every time I walked across the Berkeley campus, at least one undergraduate would come up to me and say, Veronica. <laughs> thank you. So, Veronica, thank you. Thank you. Uh, my colleague, Professor Sarah Anzia, will present the second outstanding GSI award. everybody. It's great to see all of you. Um, it's my pleasure to present the second award for Outstanding Graduate Student Instructor to Emma Kaplan. Emma, can you come to the stage? Yes, absolutely. So Emma was a GSI for my politics class this past fall. Our students and graduates, of course, have to do much more than just evaluate the costs and benefits and the merits of different policy solutions. They have to grapple with how to get a desired policy adopted. And to do that, they have to have a political strategy. They have to maneuver within political institutions and maybe even help to shape those institutions. Success in the political realm means collective action, negotiation, dealing with a large, powerful interest group that is vehemently opposed to you, building coalitions, thinking about what policymakers' incentives are and how you might bring them to your side. So that's what this class is about. We don't have a final exam. We have a budget simulation. I'm going to come back to that. So as part of this budget simulation, each student has a role. Most are U.S. senators, but others are members of the president's administration, the media, the congressional budget office, and they work for three weeks to try to design a budget resolution that can pass. And at the end, they meet for a very long day and night uh, of debates and speeches and floor votes and usually some backroom dealing. So Emma was a GSI for this class this past fall, and she was outstanding. 
The weekly sections she designed, designed were fantastic. So just to give you one example of many, um, for the week on interest groups and coll the collective action problem, she put together a set of readings about the NRA and some of the interesting ways it recruits and retains members and builds their loyalty to the organization. Um, and for the section discussion, she asked students to consider whether the ACLU might or could borrow or adopt some of these strategies successfully. Or if not, what is it about the ACLU that's different um, and organizationally or in its membership? So Emma also went above and beyond when the night before the big day of the budget simulation, Toward the end of the semester, all of the classes on campus were abruptly canceled due to the smoke from the campfire. I didn't know what to do. Um, the students had been working very hard for three weeks and were ready to go, and this isn't the kind of thing you can just easily reschedule for another date because all 50-plus students have to be there. Otherwise, you end up with a weird, lopsided institution like 70% Democrats in the Senate, right? Um, so... <laughs> Emma came through to help in a big way, offering possible solutions to this dilemma, and thanks to all that she did organizationally and serving as a sounding board for me, we managed to reschedule for a day that everyone can attend, and it was successful. Some on their student evaluations complained that the budget simulation was too long, and I hear you. It, was, it took six weeks instead of three. Um, so I'm only scratching the surface here. Emma did an amazing job as GSI for this class. She's a talented teacher, she's smart, she's creative, she's organized, she's dedicated. And I'm so happy and so pleased to present you with the GSI Award for 2019. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm Jane Malden. I'm the head graduate advisor for the MPP program and the faculty director of the MPA program. And I have the great pleasure of introducing the next two student awards, the Eugene Smolensky Prize for Outstanding Advanced Policy Analysis and the Eugene Bardak Prize for Outstanding Capstone. These awards recognize two graduates for their work on their master's thesis projects. These final projects that are the culmination of their graduate education at GSPP. So before we announce the recipients, I want to tell you a little bit more about these projects. The Smolensky Prize for the Outstanding Advanced Policy Analysis, that's to say APA, is for the GSPP master's thesis in the MPP degree. And the student, each student works with a particular client from the government sector, the nonprofit sector, the advocacy sector, legislative sector, to help them solve a policy problem using the GSPP Public Policy Toolkit, the Eightfold Path. This award was established in honor of our former GSPP dean, Eugene Smolensky, and we present it at commencement each year. And the second award is the Bardak Prize for the Outstanding Capstone, which is the name we use in the MPA degree for a similar uh, master's thesis, namely a project that a student undertakes for a particular client in policy analysis and to solve a policy problem. 
This award was established in honor of Professor Emeritus Eugene Bordak, who wrote the book, literally, on the Eightfold Path for Public Policy Analysis, and we present this award likewise at commencement each year. So how do we select the award winners? I oversee the selection process. I ask the faculty who are teaching APA sections and CAP sections to nominate one project from their section. Usually sections of 10 people, plus or minus like 8 to 12 or 13, something like that. So one of those projects gets nominated from each section, and I convene a faculty committee to review all the nominated projects to determine the winners for this award. So um, before we announce the ultimate winners, I'd like to name the MPP graduates who were nominated first for the Smolensky Prize for the APA Award. Please stand as I call your name. Zach Deitsch-Gross. Sergio Duenas. Johanna Inamorato. There's Johanna. Nayuki Nomada. Komada. Mary Caroline Palmer. Henriette Roman. No one. Hasib Siddiqui. And Carson White Lemons. And then the nominees for the Bardak Prize for the Outstanding Capstone are Peter Colavito, Maria Leticia Gonzalez Verdugo, Debbie Wilbur, and Javier Zulueta. And I would now like to invite Hector Cardenas and Todd Achilles to come to the podium to announce the winners for both awards. My name is Hector Cardenas, and I'm a GSPP, MPP, and PhD alum. And I have the distinct pleasure and privilege to lead one of the advanced policy analysis and two capstone sections this semester. The graduate selected as winner of the Smolensky Prize for Outstanding Advanced Policy Analysis is Sergio Duenas. Sergio worked for the California Storage Energy Alliance. The title of his paper is Barriers and Opportunities for Long-Duration Storage Procurement in California, an assessment of the impacts of decarbonization targets on the real reliability proceedings in California. Now, that is a long-duration title. Sergio Duenas' paper is a carefully constructed analysis of how the state of California should deal with the challenges for its energy grid from the otherwise positive moves to decarbonize its energy supply. 
Sergio's work blends rigor and attention to detail with deep interest in the topic and commitment to the larger public policy issues involved in our civilization's response to climate change. In his paper, Sergio clearly and simply explains the technical issues that arise as the energy grid becomes progressively more reliant on renewable energy sources that are intermittent because of their dependency on weather patterns. He then reviews the literature on how to deal with power fluctuations through a combination of overgeneration, curtailment, and optimized short-duration storage. Sergio gives the literature its due with a fair and balanced exposition of the arguments against long-term storage, mostly based on cost. Then he conducts his own analysis grounded in the California context. This is the second remarkable part of his APA, in which he explains his use of a complicated, complex model called Resolve to find the optimal mix of different energy sources given California's climate change goals. Sergio lays out how the right mix of hydropower, photovoltaic, battery storage, and long-term storage changes under different scenarios. He concludes that long-term storage will be attractive, but only if the transportation and construction sectors become more electrified or there are less natural gas generators, but that if battery storage costs fall significantly, long-term storage will not be needed to offset the weather-related variability of load. But that's not enough. Then Sergio performs a different analysis to determine whether locational variability, that's variation based on location of where energy is consumed and, and produced, could benefit from long-term storage. Again, he carefully analyzes the different options for reducing location-based variability and goes on to show that in this case, long-term storage is well-suited and cost-effective to even out loads. The technical analysis is extremely thorough, systematic, and well-explained. I even understood it. Moreover, it is even-handed and meticulous. Perhaps the most impressive part of the paper, though, are his recommendations. In this last section, Sergio demonstrates a command of the mechanisms through which the California Public Utilities Commission works and of the regulatory framework and its weaknesses. His proposals are specific, detailed, knowledgeable, and clearly explained. Sergio's APA is a brilliant example of the kind of work we want and expect of our students. It has a sophisticated framing of the problem informed by a thorough technical analysis and a deep understanding of the energy sector. It uses data extremely skillfully. It includes concrete recommendations that are clear, detailed, feasible, and useful to his client. Most importantly, perhaps, this APA demonstrates that our work as policy analysts, technical as it may sometimes be, is fundamentally about the future of our planet and the welfare of its people. Congratulations, Sergio. Hi, my name is Todd Achilles. I led one of the capstone sections for the MPA program. And I'm very pleased to announce that the graduate selected for the Bardak Prize for Outstanding Capstone is Debbie Wilbur.
So Debbie's capstone was titled Weaving Social Services to End Child Maltreatment. And Debbie's client was uh, in Cleveland, Ohio, an organization called Providence House. It was 37 years old and, and delivered services to at-risk families and children in crisis. Um, and they had just acquired a great big building in a, whole, in a different part of Cleveland on the east side. And they were trying to figure out what to do with it beyond kind of the core services. And that was Debbie's task. And her problem statement was very clear right from the start. Too many children are experiencing abuse and neglect in Cuyahoga County. And I, what I'm really impressed with, with Debbie's work is the first thing she did is just dig into the environment. What's this operating environment look like? She went through the data and understood what were the deltas between where the organization functioned now and where it was going. And the numbers were shocking. And I think she, oh, it's <laughs> sweet. <laughs> So she, uh, so she dug into the data, and, and the, the numbers, the, the challenges in this neighborhood related to all of the redlining from back in the 30s, and this institutionalized, concentrated poverty. Uh, and uh, the most shocking thing, particularly for Providence House, was in the tract, in the census tract where they were putting the new building, uh, rates of child abuse and neglect were four times higher than where the organization was functioning now. So they had to do things differently. So not only a fantastic data set that Debbie put together, but then she, she complemented that with interviews with stakeholders and leaders in that part of Cleveland uh, and put this whole thing together within the context of what this small organization could actually accomplish. So she laid out the steps against uh, a, a great depth of, of research on what the literature shows as, as uh, interventions that work fit that within a budget and a timeline that worked for the organization, and basically with the conclusion that uh, they're going to have to do things differently in this new part of Cleveland, but the need is there, and, and they need to jump right in. It was great work, uh, phenomenal stuff. And I think this is exactly uh, why I think this capstone is particularly important, because she did this all while moving to Cleveland, raising her daughter, and doing this all together, all by herself. Great work. <laughs> Congratulations to Sergio and, uh, and Debbie. Just wonderful work. I want to read both of them. They, they just sound, uh, I guess I'm a policy wonk. I, I like to read this kind of stuff, and, and that's what we all are. Um, we're really lucky today to have as our uh, commencement speaker, uh, Professor Rucker Johnson. Uh, as many of you know, Rucker actually just turned down Stanford to stay at UC Berkeley. And wow. I am exceptionally happy. That, that's really, it's really wonderful. Um, Rucker Johnson is the Chancellor's Professor of Public Policy uh, in the Goldman School of Public Policy, as you all know. He's also an associate in the National Bureau of Economic Research. He earned his PhD in economics at the University of Michigan and at UC Berkeley. He's been here since 2004. He teaches graduate and undergraduate courses in applied econometrics. Many of you in the MPP certainly know, well, actually, Yes, you guys would have had Rucker. Yes, you had Rucker. So good. So you know he teaches that. Uh, and topical courses in race, uh, poverty, and inequality. 
He specializes in the economics of education, uh, and he recently was one of 35 scholars to receive the prestigious 2017 Andrew Carnegie Fellowship. Uh, his research has appeared in leading journals, peer-reviewed, uh, and he's just finished what I consider to be an absolutely remarkable book. It's based upon the best possible economics research, research that's already appeared in peer-reviewed journals. Uh, and that's the gold standard for research that tells the truth and has got it right. Um, and in addition, he's gone and written a book where he's done lots of interviews with people, and he gives you a texture of the policy area he's studying. And the area he's studying is the course of integration in America over the last uh, 60, 70 years since Brown versus Board of Education. This was probably the biggest policy innovation of the second part of the 20th century. And what Rucker shows brilliantly, and I think conclusively, and in a way that really uh, makes you understand exactly how it worked and why it worked, uh, that integration was a great policy. It wasn't only just morally the right thing to do. Of course it was that. But what he also shows is that it was the good thing to do for the society because it made African Americans better off, and despite what racists said, it didn't have a negative impact on white people at all. Now, many of us would have said, well, of course that's true, but what's extraordinary about Rucker's work is he proves that using the best possible methods and the best possible economics research. And so the result is we find out that a morally right policy is also a good policy for America. And I think that's an extraordinary thing to know for sure. What he also shows is that we've unfortunately backtracked on integration, that for a while we were moving forward with it, now we've backtracked, and the net result is we are all, we are all, we are all worse off. And he documents this in detail. So with that introduction, let me give you Rucker Johnson, whose new book, Children of the Dream, Why School Integration Works, is an extraordinary piece of work that I really recommend to everybody. Everybody should go and, and get it and read it. <laughs> Rucker. I pay him to say these great things. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Good morning, class of 2019. All right. Dean Brady, most distinguished honorees, dedicated family, friends, faculty, staff, and to each of the talented, ambitious, courageous, passionate, civic-minded GSPP graduates of the 2019 before us here today, thank you. What a tremendous honor to share this day with you and what a privilege it's been to teach in the core graduate MPP, MPA, and PhD programs. So, so, so you remember when you first came to GSPP for orientation? Remember when we warned you about updating your marital status on social media? There were, there were three options, single, married, in graduate school. <laughs> well, today you can update your status. I, I think it was MLK that once said, everything we see is a shadow cast by that which we do not see. Today we see your glory, but we cannot see your foundation directly. We observe it indirectly by how you respond when adversity arises, when new challenges present themselves and you access your toolbox of policy analysis. We want to thank our foundation, 
I don't mean a philanthropic one. The solid foundation upon which all else is built. Family who've undergirded your growth and development and your amazing accomplishments. Family, we honor you. We are, your love, your sacrifice, and GSPP has been privileged to lay our professional foundation upon which you first established. Graduates, we have believed in your potential and invested in it accordingly. With all the family and friends who have traveled today to celebrate this milestone with you, and in observation of all you've traveled intellectually, to achieve mastery of policy analysis, I want to spend some time talking about the power of public transportation. But here I mean the engine underneath the hood. For the currency of this degree is best measured in how far it travels. You'll leave this place, but it won't leave you. Because we're all traveling with you. But first, you've got to get your public policy driver's license, which has three components. There's the written test, the vision test, and the driver's test. Now, you remember when you were 15 and how excited you were to get that driver's permit. Today, we celebrate that you've passed the written portion of the test. You've aced the APA papers, the written exams, but as you well know, there's more to a great school than simply how one does on the test. The process isn't over because before you get behind the wheel, you must pass the vision test. Demonstrate that not only you see what's ahead of you, but what's in the peripheral as well. There are other policy drivers on the road. These dangerous blind spots, what leads to them? Not considering diverse perspectives, distributional consequences, siloed analyses versus the recognition of the intersectionality of education, of housing, of health, of social justice, of environmental justice, the intersections of race, socioeconomic status, and gender. All drivers must share the road to equal opportunity. Now, after you've passed the written and vision test, you must get behind the wheel and drive and apply all the knowledge in the real-world policy settings. So what gear are you in right now? Park. <laughs> As you bask in the rays of graduation, remember this is not your last accomplishment or even the most significant one. If you stay here too long, you'll be at a standstill. You're not created to be in one place, one space, one season. And it is possible to run out of gas and park. Today is not a parking place, but a launching pad. So reverse. It can help you get out of park to align yourself to move forward at the right angle. But you can't live in reverse. You can't be driven by the past failures, mistakes, glance back, but move forward. That's why the windshield is bigger than the rearview mirror, because where you're going is bigger than where you've been. Now, neutral, now that's the most dangerous gear. Because if you move, your direction is not based on your own decisions but only external forces around you, voices, people, the environment. And you can burn up your engine in indecision. So drive. No matter what gear you were in before, it's time to live and drive. It's a definitive decision to put your pedal to the metal with intentionality, speed, and force. Today is not the finish line, but the starting gate. Ready, set, go. 
but go where? (laughs) We listen to Siri, that voice on our phone that talks to us on the GPS app. But we're in the dead spot. We have lost reception. And that's where you must chart your new path where a road has not been and listen to the inner voice. Now, let let me tell you a little bit about my, my first road trip and my first accident. This was before texting and driving was even possible. I turned, my Pepsi spilled, I looked down to grab it, I saved a 50-cent soda and ruined a $10,000 car. Now the lesson, don't turn your attention to the small thing in your hand and risk losing the big thing on the road ahead. Today marks the date you've earned your official license to practice medicine. Oh, oh, I mean policy because we make policy prescriptions. Now that you have your MPA, your MPP, your public policy PhD license, what vehicle will transport your ideas next? The make and model should be determined by the journey you embark on. I might suggest a rugged, all-terrain vehicle. Now, I know what you're thinking, but no, you gotta trade in the luxury two-seater Porsche so you can transport more passengers than the Land Rover for the road of opportunity is congested. But the carpooling, when you carry people, it actually accelerates your speed. See, driving in the SUV and the HOV, it builds the on-ramps. You're building bridges. And sometimes it's less about where you're going and more about who's going with you. Can I remind you? We're going with you, all of us. These skills, these tools, they travel. You need a lot of room to deliver our most precious merchandise. Innovative policy approaches and design for the most pressing societal problems. Now, how do ideas travel? Time to gas up. Hope is the fuel you'll need. I think it was in the 50s that a scientist from Johns Hopkins did a series of experiments that tested how long rats could swim before drowning. They found that under normal circumstances, a rat could swim about 50 minutes, 15 minutes before giving up and sinking. However, if he rescued the rats just before drowning, dried them off, and let them rest briefly, and then put them back in the same buckets of circulating water, the rats could swim an average of three days before drowning. Yes, three days. If a rat was temporarily saved, it would survive 240 times longer than if it was temporarily saved. How could these rats swim so much longer the second time, especially just after swimming as long as possible to stay alive? This makes no sense unless you understand the power of hope. Envisioning hope fuels perseverance. The rats had a clear picture of what being saved looked like so they kept swimming for it. Now, there are a lot of things that need saving today that appear to be drowning. We have suppressed voter rights, decimated public services, assaults on collective bargaining rights, slashed taxes on the wealthy, surges in racial prejudice, gun violence, opioid addiction, and sowing public distrust of government institutions. If you don't have hope on your side, you will not last to see the policies through that combat these injustices. As Cornel West said, justice is what love looks like in public. Hope and power, hope and love in power 
but alone they don't change policy. So before you go, hold fast to hope and your policy analysis tools and beware of the risks to our democracy, the twin enemies of apathy and indifference, the politics of division, strategies that consolidate power among the wealthy, and fact-free ideological debates that ignore rigorous empirical evidence and best practices. So be vigilant. Don't, don't trade human bias for technological biases, biases built into facial recognition systems, machine learning algorithms that reinscribe prejudice. You've got a license to drive policy change now. But do you know when you first became dangerous? That is dangerous to the threat to societal ills, problems, technological and global challenges. You know when those problems first officially had an expiration date? It was when you liberated yourself from asking the question, where can I make a living? And instead asked, where can I make a difference? Now we have a house full of those people today, and that's part of what we're celebrating on this commencement. Making money is the lowest form of wealth. Making a difference is the highest form. Now, now the best thing I saw this past weekend, paying it forward, was the example of billionaire Robert Smith philanthropist, CEO of Vista Equity Partners, who was the commencement speaker yesterday at Morehouse College, my alma mater. And during his graduation speech, he made a surprise announcement that he would pay off all the student debt of the Morehouse graduating class of 2019. An estimated $40 million, the entire class. Now, I don't have it like that. So, so I don't become bestowing those types of gifts on our amazing graduates. But universities are a place of higher education that liberate and democratize access to the labor market. They shouldn't be institutions that make you a prisoner to your debt for the rest of your life. But no burden, no debt, compares to the weight of hopelessness, which means that giving the gift of hope to someone who needs it through policy reforms may be one of the most valuable gifts we could ever give. So I want to talk about being a difference maker, being the human coefficient with three asterisks with small standard error, the human DYDX, the heartbeat of the differential equation, the change agent with generalizable results and holding keys to the policy prescription with both internal and external validity. I'm talking about what makes the difference going from identifying the causal effect to causing the effect you identify. It's not what you do, it's who you are. Your purpose is noble and just. There will not be others to pick up your mantle if those like yourselves who are most privileged and well-trained fail to answer the call. We will all respond differently, but inevitably we must all respond. In the book of Jeremiah, we are asked to seek the well-being of the city to which I have sent you. And for in seeking its well-being, you will find your own. We are all expected to be warriors, not passive observers of the challenges and circumstances that face people in places. To those of us who have been given great opportunities, and UC Berkeley is one of those, even more is expected. We must find a just and righteous cause for our life's work and worth. We will not all serve and lead in the same cause, for there are many worthy causes of action. We can choose to reach for the baton or ignore the obvious inequality in our community. 
There are not others who are created for our special work or who are standing in line to carry on your specifically designed problem. If not us, then who? If not now, then when? Now, Berkeley's given you the tools, the knowledge, skills, and a network of friends and colleagues to call upon. You are graduating, yes, but you're not expected to have all the answers to the questions that you will confront on your journey. There will be times that you will grapple with the right answer. You'll feel frustrated that getting this degree did not solve every problem. You'll learn that there are always competing interests. You'll learn that few questions have one answer. You'll learn the importance of continuing to listen and learn and to hold fast to your values while being willing to re-examine your assumptions. You'll learn that success is not a solo activity, that you'll need to be willing and open to collaboration. You'll learn you cannot afford to stop dreaming of the possibilities. Now, most children are expert dreamers, but lose the ability to keep dreaming as they enter early adulthood. I believe we lose that childhood nature, childlike nature, when we stop dreaming. It is the beginning of accelerated aging. Now, belief. It's the beginning of every dream, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The fact that you're crossing this stage today is a testament of the fact that you've outdreamed imagination, outworked determination, outlasted procrastination, outlived fear of failure. Now you must do it again and again and again for you and the greater good. So my final exam question for you today is, what will you change in a single generation? That's what I'm asking this class. And I want to return us to the UC Berkeley campaign with this remember when, with this unapologetically bold optimism. When you return for your reunions, we want these to be your conversations. Remember when cancer wasn't treatable over the counter? Remember when stress made us sick? Remember when organic food was in a special section? Remember when U.S. public education was a market system in which access to high-quality schools was rationed via real estate and exclusionary zoning? Remember when zip code determined your children's life chances? We believe you're the cohort. You are the set of cohorts that can turn those realities into a memory. You're the difference makers, the change agents, the human heartbeat behind any beta coefficients, with three asterisks denoting not by chance, but by intentionality. Now, education doesn't change the world. Education changes people. People change the world. And it's your leadership. Real leadership is simply leading in the service of others. Leaders are often developed and cultivated in environments in which they were once positive outliers. We're not talking about the top 1% of the wealth distribution that our Berkeley colleagues, Emmanuel Saez and Gabriel Zuckman, are often writing about. We're talking about the upper part of another distribution that should matter more. The beauty of the bell-shaped curve is found in the life of the outlier. In statistics, as you know, an outlier is that data point that differs significantly from other observations. And this group is anything but average. I have a room full of positive outliers. These are not accidents, not errors, but rather uniquely gifted, highly trained public policy professionals. These are the movers, shakers, the shifters of the entire distribution to the right. 
and I don't mean right-wing in a partisan sense. I'm talking about recentering the outlier in our public policy discourse. I challenge you to recenter the missing data, the lost voices, the left behind, the marginalized, the disenfranchised, the lost potential, the unmeasured variables, and to highlight how their omissions matter. And experience what it means to give voice and bring voice to the omitted so that the conversation is no longer biased. Representation matters. You are not the noise to be silenced, nor the air that attenuated the measured impact, but you are the true signal of things now and things to come that speaks truth and removes bias. Change agents, the betas. I never joined a, a Greek fraternity, so I'm taking the time to induct you now. Some of you may have originally felt like it was hazing in PP240B or econ or politics, but we were just equipping you. Sometimes it's important to recognize you're the product of outliers. That teacher that went out of their way to mentor you in high school, the guidance counselor who would advise you to consider that mentorship, recenter the outlier to make it the norm. You are well equipped to lead, never estimate your own potential and leadership potential in particular. Your leadership is not about a position or a title. What people will remember is how you show up. Your moral compass is about how you did something as much as what you did. Leadership demands hard work, head work, honor, and humility. You have the resilience and courage. You will need it in the next phase for charting a path that otherwise might consider a bit crazy. You carry the Berkeley badge wherever life takes you. People will fortunately and unfortunately judge us through you. You should wear the brand proudly and bring your active and authentic self to every endeavor every day. In closing, over the last decade, I have thought a lot about inequality, about opportunities afforded to me and not others, and what we must collectively do to create a more perfect union for all, not just for the sum. I've learned lessons from many of you. You have expanded my thinking and that of my colleagues in ways that you may never know. I have learned that relentless drive and patience I've learned to question assumptions and biases I may have had and been forced to reframe arguments to reflect insights you have taught me. I've learned that the answers are always in the room, but not always from those of us who are professors. I've been gifted and inspired by your brilliance and your intellect, your search for truth and willingness to probe beyond your circumstances and the obvious. You have stretched and strengthened the Goldman School and for choosing us and choosing to come as we learn together, we are forever grateful. You stretched and stimulated my colleagues to think deeply and differently, to pause and prepare more intentionally to, in response to what you bring, and to wonder and question our own why. So this is a proud day for your parents and family members, but especially a proud day for us as well, who have had the good fortune to cross your path. And of course, you should celebrate and be proud that you have successfully completed this portion of the journey. May you continue to find a light at the end of the tunnel, and may you always find ways to illuminate the road for others to follow. And we do expect you to stay in touch. And as you spent so much time at GSBP, living there, hibernating there, we also want to give you back your life. So we're celebrating that too. So get a life now. And while you're at it, find your purpose and live out your calling. Let's hear it for the GSBP class of 2019.
Okay. Good morning. It's still morning, yes. Good morning. Um, Rucker, of course, is a tough act to follow, um, but the good news for me is that I don't have to be inspiring like that. I get to talk about somebody else's inspiring and path-breaking work. Uh, so I am Professor Jack Glazer, and I'm pleased to stand before you today to present the PhD in public policy degree to Amanda Charbonneau. Amanda, please come to the stage. We're going to start handing out some degrees now. I've had the great pleasure uh, of serving as Amanda's faculty advisor and the chair of her dissertation committee. Amanda's dissertation, titled The Law and Psychology of Suspicion and Police Decision-Making, exemplifies the mission and purpose of public policy scholarship. She's identified a vexing social problem, inequities in the application of government authority, specifically policing. And she's brought to bear sophisticated social science methods, as well as deep understanding of the relevant statutory and case law. Reasonable suspicion is the central governing concept in policing. And yet we have very little understanding of the psychological experience of suspicion, and that qualifier, reasonable, is inherently vague and perilously malleable. Thousands of civilians are subjected to police investigatory contact daily based on the application of this standard, and yet it is the proverbial black box. To address this, Amanda employed rigorous psychometric methodologies and statistical modeling to find out what people experience when they experience suspicion, and in so doing, has dramatically advanced the science on this important psychological construct. Amanda also dove headlong into the legal scholarship and the fraught case law on reasonable suspicion, describing how the standard has morphed and spread to a point where police officer discretion in decisions to stop and search is virtually unfettered. Her work will be of tremendous value to policymakers as well as law enforcement executives and oversight professionals who seek to make policing in America more just. It's been my absolute privilege to work with Amanda Charbonneau. She is brilliant, driven, kind, balanced, intensely responsible, thorough, thoughtful, creative, and courageous. Not fearless, but courageous. Fearless is easy. Courageous is hard and Amanda is courageous. And I'm happy to say that Amanda, while going professionally far, has not gone much distance geographically. She's obtained a terrific postdoctoral fellowship at UC Davis's Violence Prevention Research Program, where she, she continues her path-breaking research, and they're very lucky to have her. Hold on. One more thing to say. Uh, it is my pleasure to confer upon Amanda Charbonneau the Doctor of Philosophy degree in public policy.
My name is Martha Chavez. I'm the Senior Assistant Dean for Academic Programs and the Dean of Students. We will now begin the presentation of the Master of Public Policy degrees. Abigail Edu Daco. Devika Agraul. Brian Alexander. Ramsey Alcasey. Emily Alter. Jahan Amir Ebrahimi. Elizabeth Annis. Anne Marie Ashby. Rashid August. Chazelle Babev. Maria Balcazar Tellez. Galen Bickford Gewerter. Britt Bieber. Michaela Binsfeld. Sarang Chadri. Laura Chen. Sakib Chadri. Veronica Cummings. Michael DeGroff Kirchgraber. Zach Deitch Gross. Sergio Duenas. Kelly Fallon. Todd Falkenberry. 
Emma Fernandez. Sam Finn. Catlin Gray. Caroline Grunewald. Jesse Harney. Wesley Wong. Johanna Enamorato. Lizzie Jekinowski. Zosha Cantel. Benjamin Kane. Emma Kaplan. Kathleen Kirsch. Nayuki Komada. Jenny Kwan. Theodore Joseph Cooper. Daniel Lau Talens. Michael Lau. Jackson Lee. Michelle Levinson. Andrea Lynn. James Mahadi. Emily McCaffrey. Mary McGrail. Christian Gregory Miller. Joseph Monardo. Junie Moon. Andrea Morgan. Chelsea Muir. Sarah Mulhauser.
Navarro. Max Neumeyer. Robert O'Connor. Toyoshi Onda. Ahmed Paliwal. Mary Caroline Palmer. Jacqueline Calderon Pearl. Victor Fu. Anna Conroy Powell. Heather Regan. Ned Reznikoff. Alfredo Rivera. Anthony Alexander Rodriguez. Eunice Rowe. Henrietta Werman. Andreas Samson Garoski. Allison Schmidt. Max Gro. Devin Shea. Naomi Schiffman. Angela Short. Hasib Sadiqi. Ratna Sinroja. Hannibal Tesfahunen. Stephanie Thornton. Rina Yvette Torres. Tim Sai.
Voskarician. Carson White Lemons. Emery Wolf. Iris Hugh Tong Wong. Chen Chen Zhang. Good morning, everyone. My name is Annie Campbell Washington. It is my absolute honor to serve as Assistant Dean and Executive Director of the MPA program. We will now confer the MPA degrees. Rogers Agaba. Candice Benj. Peter Colavito. Rachel Del Rossi. Anthony Federico. Pooja Gangorde. Harsh Gupta. Joyce Halabi. Brian Harris Mateague. Shani Hazan. Nidhi Hegday. Sigridor Ingadotter. Askar Khan. Jennifer Kim. Helen Lay. Delia Lin. Julie Lowe. Sonoko Azawa. Nanye Shivar Patil. Lauren Randall. 
Joel Sedania Jr. <laughs> Kira Sergatsky. Brenda Saipura. Stacy Skull. Kavi Singh. Satya Narayanan Srinivasan. Hirsch Vivek. Gustavo Westman. Debbie Wilbur. <laughs> Christopher Warman. Ao <laughs> Zhang. Javier Zulueta. Leticia Gonzalez Vertigo. Okay. Almost there, not quite. Don't leave, don't leave. I actually have to confer the degrees. Um, first, I just want to say thanks to this extraordinary faculty that's behind me. Uh, that's one of the reasons the Goldman School is as great as it is, so thank you to the faculty. And thank you to the staff who, uh, on a moment's notice, moved this to the Craneway Pavilion. Uh, which is just lovely. Thank you, everybody. So, in closing, let me thank the class of 2019 for your deep involvement in GSBP and your contributions to it. We're a better place because of you. Thanks for being here. And let me urge you, as everyone has, to go forward with the knowledge and courage you have gained at GSBP to change the world. Frankly, we're counting on you. We need you. So please, go do it. Thank you. We need you more than ever. Okay, now I get to do the part, which is the, the one little bit of authority I actually have. I can say, all graduates, please stand. And then I say, by virtue of the authority vested in me by the president and regents of the University of California... I grant you this degree from the Goldman School of Public Policy. You are now graduates.
So this concludes the ceremony. Uh, you are invited to join us for a reception which will take place in the area beyond the curtain towards my right. I'm supposed to, it says point to your right. I'm doing that. Congratulations again to the Goldman School of Public Policy Classes of 2019.